0: The Interchange is brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is building connected solar power plants of the future by integrating new PV technology, storage, and advanced control software. Stay with us because at the end of the show, we'll tell you about some really important tech trends in solar with NextTracker CEO and industry veteran, Dan Sugar. We're also brought to you by Trina Solar, the global leader in PV modules and smart energy solutions. With decades of industry recognition and awards, Trina Solar is committed to delivering reliable and fully bankable solar tech to the world. Find out more at trinasolar.com U.S. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Conventional wired approaches may still be viable, but they're not always the best solution. Non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. SNC Electric Company helps utilities and commercial customers find the best solutions to meet their energy needs and perhaps go non-wired. Learn more at snc.com slash nwa Green Tech Media Podcast.
1: This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Shale Khan, a managing director at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. And this week, the bumpy road to the hydrogen economy. So. In the universe of clean energy, I think the world seems to rally around basically one big technology movement each decade. This is when governments introduce subsidies, incumbents start to announce big goals and projects, lots of startups pop up, investment starts to arrive, and a relatively nascent technology gets a chance to scale from tiny to just small in the hopes of achieving liftoff sort of toward the end of that decade. In the 1990s, I would argue it was wind. In the 2000s, it was solar. In the 2010s, it was lithium ion batteries. And to me at least, it seems pretty clear that the 2020s are gonna be all about hydrogen. But hydrogen is a different beast from all of these other technologies that I just mentioned. For one thing, you can't just harness it like you can solar or wind, you have to make it somehow. For another, there's a dizzying array of potential end markets for it, ranging from the power sector to transportation to industry and various subsegments segments within each. And finally, there's the pesky problem of the midstream. Assuming we do start producing lots of clean hydrogen and we do find a market for it, how are we going to store it? How are we going to transport it? Is this even realistic? So those are the big questions that I think we are facing as we look down the barrel of a decade focused on hydrogen. And... I find this stuff fascinating, um, and I'm really excited to have with me somebody who spends most of his time thinking about the answers to these questions. I'm joined by Ghanivamir Flees, who is an energy and climate advisor at Agora Energy Venda and has spent the last few years uh, laser focused on the thornier issues of building a hydrogen economy, of which there are many. Ghanivamir, welcome.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's uh, great to be here.
1: Let's start by orienting around like the current state of hydrogen. Um, you know, maybe a little bit about why there's so much focus on it. But I think more importantly, like what what is the ambition, particularly in Europe, where I think there has been the most activity, maybe behind Japan. Um, what are the ambitions that are stated from the government, and like how how is the expectation that this would play out shaping up?
2: Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Um, you, you touched upon uh, Japan being a uh, leader in the hydrogen space previously. Nowadays, um, the global leader in hydrogen is arguably Europe, and European ambitions um, are very interesting. So what is happening in Europe right now is we are realizing that there needs to be a recovery package after COVID. And, uh, Hydrogen is taking the prime place as the sort of as the sort of uh, leading element of this recovery package accounting for approximately half of the funds that um, we will be allocating.
1: Okay, so you're saying that roughly half of the is that of the entire recovery the entire stimulus or just within the energy sector?
2: Uh, Well, well, it's approximately 400. uh, It's somewhere around 400 billion. um, And this is just over half of the 750 billion recovery package that's that's being agreed. That's incredible.
1: Um, And so how much detail do we have at this point around what that money is going to go toward?
2: well this this is actually very interesting and this is what we're talking uh this is where the conversation what the conversation is about right now what exactly uh, are we going to do, do with these massive funds and the target is to deploy 40 gigawatts of electrolyzers within europe there is an additional target of deploying 40 gigawatts of electrolyzers outside europe and the idea is to create a global hydrogen market and the reason for this is that if Europe wants to decarbonize and if it wants to decarbonize these hard to abate sectors, it will. Um, hydrogen, hydrogen is a key technology in decarbonizing hard to abate sectors, but European potential for producing hydrogen is not as great as um, some of the countries uh, across the world. And this is due to the fact that um, renewable hydrogen especially has to be produced from uh, renewable energy. And Northern Europe in particular just doesn't have as cheap renewable energy as Southern Europe or even uh, further south than that um, in Africa. So
1: as I understand it, where we are now is that, you know, the European Union set this super ambitious goal, 40 gigawatts of electrolyzers, which maybe let's take an aside on that for a second. Orient us around the scale of 40 gigawatts of electrolyzers. Like how much electrolyzer capacity is there today?
2: Yeah, there is about, so according to the IEA, there is, around 250 megawatts of, um, electrolyzers producing hydrogen globally today. So we're talking of a ramp up of, um, what is it? 200 times, just, just under 200 times.
1: And that's just within Europe and then, and then double that outside Europe. So, so massive scale up ambitions there. So, um, I, I want to come back to, I mean, I think we're going to have this conversation in sort of three parts, the upstream, how do you produce hydrogen, the midstream, how do you transport and store it? And then the downstream, what do you use it for? But first, just to talk about like where all this funding and excitement is going. Um, so is it each country then in the European Union sets its own specific plan? or is it, Or is the plan for how to deploy that capital coming all the way from the top?
2: Yeah, this this is again this uh, this is still uh, very much to be fleshed out. I reckon what's what's happening right now is we have this idea of this recovery package of which half of it, just over half of it, is almost earmarked towards hydrogen, and now the European Union, um, the European Commission, set out a strategy, and what. What is happening now is nations have to develop their own strategies and they will be either competing or working together to access these funds, this $400 towards green projects, towards green hydrogen.
1: And okay, so that's a good segue then into the the three segments of the market. So as, as you described it, it feels like the, at least from what I've seen, the European Union strategy and all this funding is pretty focused on the upstream which in the case of hydrogen is the question of how do you produce it? And I don't think we need to get into this conversation around the various stripes of hydrogen and the, you know, color coding, which a lot of people talk about. But, you know, it feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, the focus in, in Europe is predominantly to use electrolyzers to produce hydrogen from renewable electricity, as opposed to all the other ways to produce hydrogen.
2: Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. But this is not. This doesn't. This strategy doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not. It's not um, as if. Yeah, it's not. It's not as if Europe is planning to just deploy 40 gigawatts of electrolyzers and let them produce. Um, there is a bigger idea behind this, and in Europe, in particular, um, European strategy is looking also to combine these 40 gigawatts of electrolyzers with a single market for hydrogen across Europe. This is. Um, what I'm talking about here is the hydrogen, the proposed hydrogen backbone, which w- which would be a massive repurposing effort of re- repurposing the pan-European gas grid to carry hydrogen. That way, um, and th- this uh, this uh, this is this has been labeled um, what's called the Europe uh, an European project of common interest, which means that a lot of countries um, can collaborate. This and this is a very international project. Um, and this and this network of pipelines across Europe is that's, it, it, that's where the hydrogen from these 40 gigawatts and potentially from the uh, additional 40 gigawatts outside Europe will be going.
1: Okay, so we'll come back to that um, backbone and the midstream question. let's let's start with the upstream question. So there's various ways to produce. Hydrogen. Hydrogen is produced today through a process called steam methane reforming, predominantly, which is not um, greenhouse gas emissions free. Which is why there's a bigger focus on electrolysis. And the um, and the underlying assumption around why it's ultimately going to become economic to produce "quote unquote" green hydrogen with electrolysis is, you know, the the primary input cost. You basically you're you're splitting water using electricity. That's all you're doing. And so electricity is your input cost. And so the the underlying assumption is that electricity will become cheaper and cheaper as time goes on. But, of course, there's this dynamic. If you want it to be green, you also want only to use renewable electricity. And so there's this interplay between how much can you run the electrolyzer? Can you run it 100% of the time, 50% of the time, 20% of the time? Um, and then the you know sort of amortized cost of the system. So what you know what is your sense of these initial electrolyzers that are going to get deployed how are they solving for that are they just saying look we're going to run this thing all the time and it's going to be partially green or are they saying no look we are going to tie this to a specific ppa from a wind or a solar project and we'll only run it 30 percent of the time or whatever it might be
2: yeah this is a very very interesting question and it touches upon um the topic of the different business models that you could run an electrolyzer so there are several ways of doing this. Um, one way is to so w- one of the business model is, like you said, uh, pairing the electrolyzer to the grid and running it, um, you know, as much um, as much as much as it makes sense, um, commercial sense. Um, but then you run into the issue of the electricity not always being green. However, this is this is sort of um, this is this is not that that important of a point because. If you think about it, if you're running, um, if you're purchasing electricity from the grid, the lowest cost electricity will typically be during um, times of high renewable share. So this idea of running electrolyzer through through the grid uh, and oh, it's dirty because there's some coal. Well, no, because this electrolyzer would just self-modulate and would just anyway, purchase, um, purchase the lowest cost electricity, which usually correlates with a high renewable share. There is another, yeah, and then there is a different method of just having a physical, um, or not even a physical, but having a PPA between a dedicated renewable asset and your hydro, um, and your hydro, uh, and your electrolyzer. The difference between these two two models actually today can be traced back to how the tax system works. So if you have a renewable asset and you if you're connected directly to an electrolyzer, then you can get around all the um, green levies and uh, green surcharges. So today, it might actually make more sense to run an electrolyzer of a dedicated asset. Um, that being said, just today also, um, well, just this week, the German government um, decided to Lift the levies on green hydrogen um, when it is connected to the grid. A project. What I'm trying to say is, if you're developing a renewable project, and um, you might in the future want to pair it up with an electrolyzer just to capture, um, ju- just to avoid curtailment. And this might be this might be an undersized electrolyzer with respect to your renewable asset. So the idea is not to run the electrolyzer of curtailment, but to supplement the revenues of your of your renewable asset. And this is the sort of um, this is sort of curtailment argument for uh, for the electrolyzer. But say if you are running a steel plant um, and you need to purchase you need a steady volume, uh, steady large volume of hydrogen, then you will probably want to just make a, um, sign a PPA for the next 15 years and not worry about um, ab- about curtailment affecting the price of your hydrogen.
1: Right. Yeah. The uh, you know attaching an electrolyzer to a renewable project to to take advantage of the curtailed energy is interesting uh, because there's, there've been discussions about doing the same thing. And in fact, some efforts to do the same thing in like West Texas with um, Bitcoin mines, basically. the idea being, you know, you have a renewable project that is getting curtailed some of the time, that's just wasted energy. If you could do something productive with that wasted energy and earn any revenue, it basically is better than zero revenue. So the cost of energy to whatever you're using the energy for is either zero or negative. But then the question is, can you run that thing infrequently enough uh, with that zero-cost energy to and, and still make money on it overall? And so with things like Bitcoin, if the price is right, like the economics might make sense. With an electrolyzer, it depends on how expensive the electrolyzer is and the price that you can get for the hydrogen on the back end. But let's... Okay, so the upstream side of this is basically... Europe intends to subsidize the creation of a ton of electrolysis capacity, both inside and outside Europe. There's also efforts in other countries as well. I suspect we will end up with a fairly substantial hydrogen investment in the United States once the new administration takes hold. We'll see how that plays out. But let's just assume that like many countries in the world introduce a hydrogen strategy, and we do see this scale up. Of electrolysis capacity, which means that we that green hydrogen starts to get cheaper and cheaper and starts mar- marching down the cost curve. Okay, so then the next question is, what do you, how do what do you do with all of that? And so, you know, if you're there's sort of a couple of different models, and it's not dissimilar from things like solar. You can either create really big electrolysis plants that are centralized um, and produce a ton of hydrogen all in one place, or you can Distribute them and make them modular and smaller, and produce hydrogen either on site at some end use facility or, you know, nearby, so that the transportation costs are lower. What do we know at this point about the trade off between centralized hydrogen production versus distributed?
2: So centralized um, centralized hydrogen production suffers from the um, suffers from the disadvantage that hydrogen is a very tricky molecule to transport and store. It is somewhat similar to natural gas but but the crucial difference here is is that in its most compact form as a liquid hydrogen has less than half of the energy density of liquefied natural gas and when we're talking about moving hydrogen in a centralized system um Actually, this is this is an interesting point because even though hydrogen has only quarter of energy density of natural gas, um, its velocity is much quicker. So when you put in into pipelines, you can roughly um, move this seventy five percent of the energy content of uh, natural gas. Um, but it's still because hydrogen has slightly different properties Um, it it is the more it is the lightest element in the periodic table it is also um, the least dense element um, which means that um, which means that it's difficult to contain which means transport expensive transport is expensive which means that compression um, is very expensive and compression accounts for a lot of costs in in hydrogen so that this is a big disadvantage for centralized hydrogen systems, and especially if you're not um, if you are not a huge hydrogen off taker, um, the cost of transporting hydrogen to you, either for a pipeline distribution, uh, either by constructing a new distribution network, or by trucking it in, um, might be just it might just make more sense to produce it locally on site.
1: But then, of course, the on-site production then you have the question of you know, what is your electricity cost going to be on site? And, you know, is it actually economic to do it there? I, I'm interested in this idea of um, sort of industrial clusters of hydrogen, which feels to me like there's there's sort of a middle ground there, right? Where if you can, if you find areas that are geographically concentrated that have a sufficient hydrogen demand amongst them may be shared by a number of different customers, perhaps even in a number of different sectors, but are all fairly, fairly co-located, then you can have this kind of like mid-scale hydrogen production, which doesn't rely then on a big network of pipelines or anything like that, but does probably require ultimately some trucking basically to, to end uses.
2: Yeah, you could, you could truck it in, um, but also if you, if you do have such a hydrogen valley... Um, what's um, what's interesting to me is um, looking at wh- how, what industries exactly are in the hydrogen valley right um, so if you ha- if you have um, if you have a hydrogen valley that has uh, that has uh, cement industry and then steel industry um, and and then just uh, just number of heavy industries um, you you might think of investing into into even blue hydrogen production for, because you can split the cost um, of the- Sorry,
1: can you clarify, can you specify for anybody who doesn't know what blue hydrogen is?
2: Yes, so blue hydrogen is uh, hydrogen produced from from natural gas reforming with uh, carbon capture and storage. So, so in these sort of hydrogen value, there's a high concentration of uh, big offtakers. B- b- big um, big industrial offtakers usually have preferential electricity tariffs anyway, and um, they're well connected to the grid. So one possibility is to just have their own hydrogen, build, their own, build up their own hydrogen supply. But depending on what sort of other industries you have in the area, you can also think about um, Instead of uh, producing renewable hydrogen, you think about doing um, hydrogen with carbon capture. And the reason for this is is because the cost of the carbon capture infrastructure you have for the for for pro- the production of hydrogen can be also split between the other industries. So, um, cement. I'm thinking especially of cement here or certain chemical processes. And this happens, um, you know, this happens uh, quite a lot of in, Ger- in Germany, where where you, you where you might have, um, for example, in the rural region in Germany, where there's a high concentration of heavy industry, everything from uh, chemistry to steel making.
0: We'll be right back with more of the conversation. First, a quick word about our supporters of the show, companies that help bring you this show for free. We're brought to you by Trina Solar. With utility-scale solar poised for major growth in the coming years, stakeholders need to ensure they're optimizing projects for better performance. As the next major step forward for the solar industry, Trina introduced the Trina Pro utility solution to make things easier for project developers and EPCs. It combines Tier 1 modules, state-of-the-art trackers, and industry-leading inverters into one customized smart solution that improves energy gains while lowering the levelized cost of energy. You can get the Trina Pro Solution Guidebook to learn more about the benefits of the all-in-one utility solution in the show notes of this podcast. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Power-related challenges and opportunities are certainly becoming more complex. Reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, they can jeopardize operations while new technologies like electric vehicles and microgrids offer great potential. Solving these challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, arriving at a conclusion can be uncertain and time-consuming. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence by working with an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of solutions developed for you. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. Okay, so so let's talk
1: a little bit about the the pipeline backbone Route obviously that's there's ambition there in Europe. You know, there's been some discussion in the U.S. as well among some of the gas um, companies, midstream gas companies, where they're talking. I think you know, in part, about just doing some blending that you can blend a certain amount of hydrogen into your natural gas infrastructure, not dissimilar from how we've blended like ethanol into petroleum, that kind of thing. Um, but it's obviously a whole different thing to go from a little bit of blending to just wholly swapping out natural gas pipelines for hydrogen pipelines? Can you talk a little bit about like what the challenges are in doing that?
2: Yeah. Um, blending is a very interesting idea. Uh, because um, I, I personally quite like the idea of blending, uh, because it is an easy way to scale up hydrogen supply. So so um, in, in many... Um, in my experience, most pipelines, from what I noticed, technically can handle up to twenty percent uh, hydrogen blend by volume before you, you start you need to think about replacing your compressors and uh, before you start need to start thinking about new lining for your pipelines. So blending is a good way to get the hydrogen to, to essentially help create demand for your hydrogen. Um, but then, once we reach the twenty percent um, threshold, then a new approach is needed. Um, jump, yeah, jumping from it, it's 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 not straightforward to jump from twenty percent to fifty percent blend. Basically, once you reach the twenty the percent around the twenty percent threshold, of course, it depends on the specific pipeline. Um, you need to make um, yeah large investments, undertake lo- lots of um, work and retrofits, and it makes more sense than to just go full out 100% hydrogen. But um, going full out 100% hydrogen brings uh, its host of challenges because then you need to start thinking about um, about your customers and um, whether their appliances are compatible with 100% hydrogen blend. And in, in essence, non-appliances used today in houses are. Right, okay
1: um that that sort of gets us toward the demand side but i mean one one other question on the the sort of midstream side which will transition into the supply side you know there's also a lot of discussion about um using things like ammonia and methanol as vectors for hydrogen delivery can you talk a little bit about like how those things interplay with each other
2: so i mentioned uh, before that hydrogen is tricky to store and transport um and um uh, These hydrogen carriers or vectors, such as ammonia or um, liquid organic hydrogen carriers, uh, things like toluene, these are molecules that you you can embed hydrogen in, in which make it easier to transport hydrogen. Um, For example, ammonia can be liquefied at at a temperature of only minus 33 degrees Celsius versus hydrogen, um, which liquefies at minus 253 degrees Celsius. So forcibly, this makes ammonia much easier to transport. However, the trade-off of um, but 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 also ammonia is um, approximately twice the energy density of liquid hydrogen. So not only do you need to put less energy into liquefying your your um, your energy carrier molecule, but you also need uh, but you also get higher volumetric density. So you can transport more of it in one go. So th- this is a, a big advantage of Carriers such as ammonia or liquid organic uh, hydrogen carriers the disadvantage here is of course that they require an extra step and when whenever there is an extra uh, an extra step in conversion in chemical conversion there's an next there is an efficiency loss uh, which translates to um, higher costs
1: okay so we've talked about hydrogen production we've talked about hydrogen delivery and, and transportation and storage let's talk about hydrogen demand. So this is the thing that makes hydrogen fundamentally distinct from those other technologies I mentioned at the beginning, solar, wind, batteries, et cetera. Those all basically just go on the grid and, you know, you can do different things with them on the grid, but they're all in the power sector. The promise of hydrogen is, as you said at the beginning, that it, potentially solves uh, a bunch of different problems in decarbonizing a bunch of different hard-to-abate sectors. So at the high level, can you walk us through the sectors that are receiving the most attention for potential transition to hydrogen? Um, And then we could talk about a couple of them individually.
2: Well, you know, the funny thing is, um, if you asked uh, somebody um, representing the hydrogen industry, they would say, well, hydrogen just can decarbonize all the sectors. (laughs) UK <laughs> right, right. Um, so can, that's
1: the that's the dream of hydrogen right is like it theoretically and this is why people were talking about a hydrogen economy decades ago is like in theory sure yeah hydrogen can solve basically every problem
2: yeah it, it is it is um the way I think about it it is a good replacement for um well a good replacement it can replace um basically any fossil fuel used today it's just uh, do it would just do a worse job but at at essentially every other application that we use uh, fossil fuels for which is why we don't um, which is why you don't see many hydrogen cars today which is why people don't have hydrogen boilers which is why we don't use hydrogen for power backup um, but um, yeah coming back to your question so yeah yes hydrogen is all, often to- touted as the silver bullet as this panacea um, I uh, I actually uh, I actually disagree with this sort of characterization because you know I think I think um, people are sort of making hydrogen to be this silver buckshot where they just load it and they just spray it that broadly at the economy and then boom hydrogen economy. Um, but hydro I like I like the I quite like the idea of hydrogen bullet where you can where where you use hydrogen to its strengths and you target it at the um, are the sectors that uh, for which it makes mo- most sense?
1: Yeah. So, um, in assuming we're not taking a silver buckshot approach and going after every single sector simultaneously, like name the top few at least from current interest.
2: So, um, the, yeah, the way I group them because there's a number of ways you can group them, but the way I group them is um, there's hydrogen for mobility, which includes cars, trucks, trains, ships, and aviation. Um, there is hydrogen for power. Um, there is hydrogen for heating, and then there is also hydrogen in um, in as a feedstock, as a chemical feedstock, for ver- various industrial processes.
1: Right. Okay. So we we probably on this show spent the most time historically talking about the transportation question, and there I think maybe, I mean my summary of that space is basically like most folks probably think the battle between hydrogen and pure electric for light duty passenger vehicles is over with the exception of maybe some Japanese companies um, but basically otherwise you know the world seems to be heading toward electric vehicles for for light duty where the battleground exists is in heavy heavy duty um, trucks that kind of thing um, and then that's for sort of road transport what we haven't spent as much time talking about is the rest of transport so rail, Aviation, maritime—you talk a little bit about those sectors.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. Right, classically, um, hydrogen—I mean, it, it, it all goes back uh, almost to the 1970s um, and the oil shocks, where, where people were trying to find replacement for for oil. Um, and uh, it, it's true, you know. For the past fifty years, we've been so focused on hydrogen and ground transport as a replacement for oil that we've almost neglected um, sectors such as aviation and and shipping and um, and trains. Now trains, um, so so we, so so in the light duty vehicle sector, um, it seems that direct electrification, or rather, maybe you should call it battery. Um, electrification seems the most cost-efficient way for for trains uh, which go on really long stretches or on track which might not be electrified. Hydrogen is a potential contender, um, and and here in the in the rail sector, this is still very much an open question. But what's really interesting is the is the shipping and aviation sectors, and the reason why they're interesting is because they've over the past uh, two years, these two sectors started receiving a lot of attention for the emissions they are responsible for. And uh, I, think, I think many people realize that there was no um, credible strategy to, to decarbonize these sectors. Um, the, the, for example, uh, in uh, and, and, and these sectors weren't even paying their fair share of the carbon tax. For example, kerosene in in the European Union, as, as far as I remember, was was um, in some places it was completely untaxed. Um, so these, so now that these sectors that have been previously ignored um, and are projected to account for an ever increasing share of uh, emissions in the future. Um, Now that these sectors are getting the attention, we're starting to think about the solutions for these sectors and Hydrogen is a very convenient solution here, uh, because it is, uh, it does function as a replacement for conventional fuels. But, uh, but I think this is um, the reason why we start talking so much about hydrogen nowadays is, is because we've only started exploring the options for these sectors. so, so we're, we're clinging on to something we, that we already know, but I, th- I think the decarbonized solutions for in these areas will the, the decarbonization options uh, for these areas will broaden. Um, and just, just just a final point here, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't explore hydrogen for these sectors um, We because we cannot afford um, to wait.
1: Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. The, my high-level heuristic here is like if there's a sector where batteries, direct electrification via batteries, um, can make economic sense, it's probably going to win because it's always – it's just one less step in the process. Hydrogen uses electricity to, to you know, split water to create hydrogen, which then you use. Electrification is one fewer step. It is literally just plugging in to the grid, so it, it'll win where it can. But the the limitation to batteries is basically um, that they are not yet sufficiently energy dense enough, um, and they're very heavy. And so in these industries like. Uh, Like in aviation, particularly the sort of bigger aviation, right? If you're running a tiny turboprop, then there's lots of folks trying to build battery-powered planes. But once you get up past the, like, 19-seater type level, um, now you need a really, really big battery, which is really heavy, which kills the economics of the plane. Hydrogen, theoretically, can be an answer to that. Um, Same thing with maritime. Same thing, potentially, with rail in some cases. So that's sort of the, like, battle playing out there. In industry it's somewhat different right like in industry a lot of what is needed is just really really high temperature heat um that's what causes a lot of emissions and so there are some direct of electrification routes to some of that stuff but it feels to me like that's a slightly different as you've said sort of using hydrogen as a chemical feedstock it's a slightly different
2: Battleground there. Oh yeah, it's does a, that seem right? It's a completely different different battleground, and that's why I made the um. That's why I previously made the distinction between the heat sector and the um and the feedstock sector. Now, under the heat sector, you get residential heat and industrial heat. Um, but as it turns out, recently uh, there was a great pair, uh, paper by uh, Sylvia madadou from the Potsdam Institute. Um, where she described where she and her colleagues described uh, the different uh, heat electrification methods and she found, she found out that there is a number of different uh, heating technologies that can actually achieve those high temperatures of above a thousand degrees Celsius that you need. So it isn't a, it isn't a foregone conclusion that hydrogen is destined for the high temperature sector. Actually, the only the the only sector which I believe uh, is hydrogen has no replacements is the chemical feedstock sector. All right. Before we
1: wrap up with like forward looking questions, are there any other end use sectors that you think like we don't necessarily need to talk about every one. So are there any others that you think we should like we could specifically talk about steel or something like that, but. Any that you think are important enough that we should note them individually?
2: Yeah, I think I think steel is a very important sector, and I think steel is also a very easy one for hydrogen. Um, at least, at least in Europe, um, I'm not sure how, how it is in the U.S. Uh, well, actually, in the U.S., a, a lot of your steel is already electrified through the scrap. Uh, um,
1: yeah, the U.S. actually has like only two integrated blast furnace steel manufacturing facilities in the, in the whole country. Otherwise, it's all. It's all electric arc furnace scrap. Yeah. Basically. Do,
2: do you know how old these uh, these facilities are? Do you know when they need their um? Do you know what they need to be replaced?
1: I don't. It's a good question.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, in Europe, um, approximately half more more than well, approximately a third of our um, blast furnaces um, need to be either relined or or um, um, or replaced in in the 2020s over the next decade. So that is a lot of emissions um, and hydrogen can do a lot of good here. And if we only switch the blast furnace route to the direct reduction method, um, we can create a, mar- a long term market for hydrogen in the steel sector. And remember, steel accounts for 7% of global emissions. That is not trivial. That is that is not just a lot of um, emissions. That is a lot of energy and uh, that is a lot of money to be made. There is a lot of money to be made in, the, in this sector. So I think steel definitely deserves an an honorable mention here. And and, the, and you know what the reason why steel is so fascinating because is because and, and the reason why steel is so good for hydrogen is because it allows you to um even though, even though switching from coking coal to to uh, hydrogen might increase your opex by 50% that um, translates to only 100 to 300 euros on top of your um, green car. So, so yeah, um, the cost of producing steel rises considerably, but then the green, uh, the products that have this green steel embedded in them actually are not that expensive at all. So, so, so yes, you you are passing this cost onto the, onto consumers, but by investing in in um, direct reduction of iron with hydrogen um, you are not just abating emissions you are also differentiating yourself so you're providing a premium product that's what that's why this that's why green steel is so interesting
1: that gets to yeah a whole a conversation we, we can have another time around the degree to which consumers be they businesses or individuals will demand green products and pay. Pay more for them. Things like green steel or green cement or, what well, you know, green building products, whatever it might be. Um, all right. So I, I think we've done a reasonable job of covering upstream, midstream, downstream. There's obviously a lot still to be figured out here, and this is why this is going to be. I've been saying a decade long, but it's probably decades long. This transition. But what seems clear to me is that the decision has been made. The 2020s are going to be the decade in which they you know, hydrogen is the, the new energy technology that receives an outsized share of attention and resources and certainly government investment. So it's going to play out one way or another. I'm curious, you know, it's easy to talk about hydrogen and how, what role it's going to play in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But I want to talk about the nearer term. Like what what do you think happens, let's just say in the next five years, how does this play out for the next few years?
2: Well, you know there is there is a lot to, there is a lot of work to be done here um, because obviously there are some strong safety concerns about, around hydrogen, um, so, and uh, these safety concerns can only be well there are safety concerns there is there is uh, there is sustainability concerns, um, and then there is equity concerns as well so so if, the, if your goal is to have a hydrogen economy if if the 2020s are the decade of hydrogen and we're developing this this hydrogen economy um, then we need to develop standards because standards currently Standards are absent around hydrogen. And, and, and if, you want to, yeah, if you want to build a global market, you need, you need to agree on a set of rules. And that's not something that, that, that's obvious. That's not something that has been agreed on. So what, what you're going to see over this decade are, are definitely pilot projects um, exporting from maybe, you know, maybe you'll see. Um, we, well, you already see them. You already see liquid hydrogen tankers um, taking uh, hydrogen from Australia to Japan. At the moment, it's still dirty hydrogen, um, which actually brings me back to my second concern: How do we ensure that this hydrogen is green? So the 2020s will also be a decade where, where we not where we where we define safety standards and, and make um make everyone comfortable with the idea of having maybe a hydrogen pipe or a hydrogen boiler in your home, or, or, or a hydrogen pipeline um you know not far from your yeah not far from your home, um, but also we need to ensure that this this new hydrogen economy doesn't doesn't end up increasing emissions i think i think in in the the 2020s we're also we also see um a pushback from civil society around hydrogen and this is actually a really interesting point because just this week uh, we've seen a report come out from cor- corporate europe Observatory CEO for short, and it's a it's a it's a civil society organis European civil society organization which which exposes um, or at least investigates the um, the effects of lobbying in the European Parliament and what they have uncovered um, well what the investigation uncovered is is fascinating because they they essentially showed for freedom of information requests that. European Hydrogen Strategy is very strongly based on a draft um, on a draft by Hydrogen Europe, which in turn is a PR company set up by FTI Consulting and also a, a bunch of um, gas players, big gas players. We're talking like Italian SNAM, for example. These players have a lot to lose in a fully decarbonized world where we no longer use gas. Um, so their idea to repurpose their um, investments and to prolong the life of their investments, is, it, it's sort of like a life, they see hydrogen as a lifeboat. So of course they want to push through um, th- this grand plan where, where Europe spends 60 billion on, on repurposing the European gas network and they're all happy because for the next 30, 40 years, they get to, they get to charge for for the regulated asset base model um, and this idea of the hydrogen backbone the hydrogen society has been very pushed very quickly over the past eighteen months I mean eighteen months ago nobody in 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 Europe um practically not many people in the world were talking about a hydrogen economy but in those eighteen months so much has changed um and what we're seeing is civil society pushing back against the idea what we're seeing is civil society asking questions okay are we are we just going to accept that big gas uh, tra- transitions into big hydrogen um so so this decade so the next decade whilst it may be the decade of hydrogen it won't be it won't be an easy decade it'll be it'll be a decade um, filled with um filled, filled with fights o- over um who over whether hydrogen is the right thing to do, and uh, and if it is, who does the hydrogen benefit? But but that doesn't really answer your question, right? You you ask me sort of what are we going to see over the next ten years, um, pro- probably from a project perspective. That's that's what you're getting at.
1: I meant like, yeah, I don't know. I think I think the, you know, there's a version of it that's like all right, we're going to start to see electrolyzer build out. We're going to see a bunch of pilot projects in a bunch of different sectors. We're going to see a bunch of hydrogen blending into natural gas infrastructure, but not really like full repurposing yet. You know, we're going to see the kind of inklings of how all this stuff will shape out, but it is going to remain subsidized for the most part, not going to be cost competitive yet in either for most end uses or green hydrogen versus blue or gray or whatever. Um, But, you know, it's going to, we're going to start, like the cost curve will start to become clear on electrolysis and the pathway will become a little...
2: Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so yes, the 2020s will be a decade of pilot projects. And you see all these pilot projects already springing up. Um, I mean, we have um, a low, uh, we have uh, a blue hydrogen project. So from natural gas reforming with carbon capture um, being being planned in the UK, for example, in the Teesside hydrogen cluster. Um, then there is the Equinor just just announced a partnership with Shell and um, just in the Netherlands, I believe, um, it's called the North H2 and it will use uh, 700 megawatts of Equinors offshore and, uh, and produce hydrogen for, for a chemical facility in, in the Netherlands. So you'll see a lot of these um, you will see a lot of these uh, green hydrogen projects, which are which will try to get access to subsidies, which will. Um, but but the main point of them is to essentially build confidence of uh, of stakeholders in the technology.
1: mir Fleas is a uh, energy and climate advisor at Agora Energy Venda. We will have a decades worth of conversations ahead of us about hydrogen. So we'll hope to have you back as this all develops. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm Shail Khan, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media.
0: And now for some bonus content. Over the next few episodes, we're closing out the show with a segment on the future of solar power plants, brought to you by our supporter, NextTracker. Solar technologies are constantly evolving, getting sleeker, stronger, and less expensive every year. They're also getting bigger. In 2020, multiple manufacturers unveiled 500 watt solar modules for utility scale projects. That's 30 percent more power output than the average panel in the field today, and it's double the output from a decade ago.
3: Yeah, it's been an exciting ride in terms of the new uh, modules that are being introduced or trying to be introduced in the market.
0: Dan Sugar is the CEO of Next Tracker. He's been finding innovative ways to build solar power plants since the 1990s. We asked Dan about the potential impact these higher watt modules will have on solar development.
3: A larger cell is really good because basically the current goes up in the cell, the efficiency of the panel usually goes up when you have a larger cell, the number of interconnects go down, all that's great. So the larger module, usually good, as long as it's not taken to a ridiculous extreme.
0: Generation goes up and interconnection costs go down. All that's great. But there are some new challenges as well. Like, how do you safely install something that big?
3: Where the practicalities come in is, first, if you go beyond a certain physical size, two people cannot easily handle the panels. And there's regulations that govern that. Uh, For example, in the U.S., it's uh, the OSHA requirements. So, you you know, you you really want to keep it at the right weight uh, so that two people can physically handle the solar panel and install it safely without hurting
0: themselves. And then there's the added exposure to wind on a larger surface. As the panel size increases, stress on the glass goes up by a squared function, and so does the stress on the tracker.
3: So the panel has to be carefully designed with the frame and with the structure to ensure that you have a reliable product for a wind speed.
0: Next Tracker has done a bunch of wind tunnel testing to make sure that the trackers and panels hold up under this stress. They're also doing deep analysis of wind speed and direction at every project site. It's an example of the company's philosophy holistic design around the entire solar power plant.
3: Next Tracker has already seen quite a bit of adoption of large solar panels in the utility scale sector, and we expect that to be able to continue. In terms of how we design our trackers, we very carefully protect the solar panel by not only protecting it from static forces, but also dynamic forces. And so we control the panel so that there are no impulse forces on the panel, which could impact the long-term reliability or durability of the solar panel. We're working very closely with module manufacturers on these uh, parameters and working with them on testing to ensure that as they move to larger formats, that the durability is maintained or even improved as, as it goes forward. We're seeing customers with a, a real flight to quality, in particular on the trackers, to ensure that uh, the panels are, are protected. Uh, you can't rely on a long-term warranty. You know, There's been a lot of uh, fluidity in the solar panel um, Uh, survivability of companies when you think about it in the decades scale on uh, manufacturers. So it's a buyer beware situation, both in the solar panel manufacturing choice, as well as the structure choice to make sure both those manufacturers are going to be around, but that also that the uh, components are responsibly designed and responsibly designed to work well together. So we've been working on the durability of these systems to work as a unified whole.
0: Again, that's Dan Sugar, the CEO of NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. In upcoming episodes, we'll hear from Dan about bifacial panels, new tracker designs to boost solar output, and all the ways to protect solar against extreme weather. If you want to learn more about how NextTracker is advancing the connected power plants of the future with smart trackers across five continents, go to nexttracker.com. Thanks for listening.